Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican Podcast. This is Inspired, a series where an artist invites someone who's influenced their creative practice to share stories behind their connection, their inspiration, and everything in between. I'm Rebecca Alero, I'm a sound artist, composer, and researcher, and I studied performance and creative enterprise at Guildhall School of Music and Drama. In this episode, I'm speaking to Elaine Michener, a contemporary vocalist, movement artist, and composer. Elaine has performed and collaborated with numerous leading artists, including War Mother, Mark Padmore, George E. Lewis, The Otterleaf Group, Apartment House, David Toop, and many, many more. She is also the founder of the collective called The Rolling Calf with Jason Yard and Neil Charles. Her sound works are also held in a curated collection by George E. Lewis at the Darmstadt Festival. I invited Elaine to talk about her work because I'm really interested in the way she uses the voice, which is something I'm starting to ease into my own practice, and how using the body as an instrument, such as the voice, can can really deeply access a certain narrative. Um, but I know, also know that Elaine has worked with Julius Eastman's compositions, and if you're not familiar with Julius Eastman, he is a black contemporary classical composer whose work may fit into the category of minimalism and certainly beyond this too. Um, I've been researching Eastman's life and work for a while now, so it's truly a joy to talk about him with Elaine um, and also the journey of coming across his work. We also get into Elaine's interdisciplinary theatre piece, Sweet Tooth, which looks at the history of the sugar trade through the use of improvisation, text and movement. We talk about sound and music, representation in classical music, and so much more. I love this conversation, and I really hope you enjoy it. I'd love to know what you're working on at the moment, in the future, this year, how that's been met with the restrictions of you know, this pandemic. And... Of course, yeah. Well, okay, one of the things I can talk about is British Art Show 9, because I'm a British Art Show 9 artist. So it's a, it happens every five years. And it's a kind of show that it's supposed to represent British art. And it tours to different regional galleries up and down the country. And it's run by Haywood Gallery Touring. I will be showing uh, a work there, which is drawn from Sweet Tooth, which is the piece that I perform. So I'm now in the middle of trying to create an installation which is uh, interesting for me. I am not known 
as someone who creates installation works, but I like the challenge of realizing or extending a piece that is a performative piece in extending it and representing it as a different kind of experience to visitors. It's like a, a, another chapter to the work. So that's, that's the thing that I am thinking a lot about at the moment. And there's all the logistic things, which I'm sure you know, mm -hmm. because you're a sound artist, the technical issues around creating sound in, in spaces. And I'd be interested to know how you manage that, because it's, it's a very different process to composing a work and then giving it to someone or performing a work that's been composed for you. I think in this setting, as a composer, I think throughout my very short <laughs> career as a composer, that's kind of what I've been doing. It's been this almost transactional thing of like, here's the piece, do the thing, thank you, goodbye. Next, do the piece. There was one aspect where, just speaking of installations, where I did try and do a kind of sound installation. Uh, it was a piece called Sung, based, like, based on grief, essentially, the grief of mammals. And it was through the experience of whales. Who, oh. who, who kind of grieve similarly to humans do. And that was really interesting to, to set it up in that way and trying to engage an audience using solely sound. So I think mm. there was a kind of sacrifice I had to make by adding screens to kind of get the point across and kind of lead the audience through this story of, of what I'm trying to say. It's interesting that you should say that you felt that you had to kind of compromise the piece because you know you have the imagination and the curiosity to just accept sound for what it is or for it to draw you in and then let your mind's eye work. I, I know that feeling because you think, I just want them to engage directly. It's interesting when you said you're not known as an installation artist. I remember watching a video of you, I think it was Wising Arts, and that to me felt like an installation <laughs> and it was, it was just you in the space and just seeing the the audience members like of just you walking through the audience you know their reaction their kind of feeling of not knowing what's going to happen next and like where to look and just looking like you are the installation like your body it's kind of like the space doesn't matter you know i've forgotten about that piece <laughs> <laughs> and i i mean i can't claim a complete credit for it because it was devised by myself and a, a very good friend who's a long-term collaborator and uh, his name is Dam Van Huyn. He's Vietnamese-American and he's a dancer and a choreographer. And we've been working together for 12 years and he has his own company. And what I've done with Dam is to kind of really explore movement and sound and how movement manipulates sound and how to combine those and balance those in the pieces that I have then created. And it's a solo piece that you saw a nude voice solo one was a duo it was this summation of the experience that dharma and i've had working together he as an amazing dancer experiences uh, sound differently music plays a different part in the world of dance full stop dharma also learned about vocalizing because of course dancers breathe much higher than trained singers and it's the opposite. It's all about, you know, it's the posture and everything's very erect. Everything is really held and contracted. And when they breathe, it's very high. It's in the chest. Whereas classically trained singer, and that's my training, it's diaphragmatic. 
and it's lower and it's basically you make yourself look fat and that's what and dancers that's the last thing a dancer is going to do right he has learned to improvise vocally and we decided to create a piece for the welcome collection but so basically this piece the the nude voice was kind of exploring kind of just different ideas we both had about time and motion and voice and we basically we kept swapping roles so i it was everything was very contracted and slow but the vocal improvisation was not in response to the speed of how we're moving or what we're doing it was a separate entity in itself and it was because we're both show ponies and it's a 20 minute piece with egg timers it was really interesting um, seeing us in the space carving up this space with people seated not knowing what to do so when i performed it on my own and rising was the first time i did so i wasn't sure that it would work but i think it does work actually and it's a very different experience there's a lot more responsibility you can't share it with anyone and it's you mentioned me being an installation yeah i guess so but i just see because i you know i perform you know i just feel it as it's a musical experience rather than a visual arts experience i can't get my head around the different these differences to be honest hearing the way you speak about dancers and and you're you're also a movement artist as well and I feel like for me anyway hearing that it makes me feel like the difference between sound and music and like dancer and movement and I wonder <laughs> <laughs> I wonder like what your take on that is like movement is it kind of similar to that thing of sound and music? Rebecca are asking these deep questions <laughs> this time. I think you know, for me, that there are certain things that aren't, it is just a sound, right? You know, we hear sounds all the time around us. You know, if I move, you know, that's a sound. If I shape it, if I repeat it again, or I'm just picking up my mug, and then if I think, okay, right, what did, when does that become music? When I start to consider shaping that sound and controlling it in a particular way, and that that comes out of playing with it and improvising. And then for me, that becomes, it transitions from just an abstract random motion sound to becoming something a bit more musical. I apply meaning behind the sound. And I think it's a, I think it's a head thing. It's difficult when you're, as a sound artist, are you dealing with the substance of sound? Are you shaping it? What is it you're hoping listeners pick up? I think that's something I've always struggled with. What do I want the listener to think of this, to think of me? Because I feel like I'm myself is always attached to the sound. And as someone that doesn't really have opportunities to perform live or improvise in the way that I'd like to, it's always like pre-recorded things. And I think it comes out in how I record as, as by improvising. So the improvisation becomes the music. And I, I think that's partly why I allow certain patterns like the shape that you say as well. To, to manifest so I don't know if it is is it even improv if I'm still creating a, a, a something recognizable throughout the piece or is that something that's still intuitive I'm not sure I, th I think it's hard to separate the intuitive action and the improvisation and I think there's nothing wrong with structuring that a structured improvisation sometimes I overthink things and you do you do need time to, pr to process you need time to think. 
you need time to question what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. Is that the right approach? Is there another way? There's always another way. I picked up the cup and I put it down, right? And I thought, okay, right, that's one. And then I did it again and I thought, well, actually I could, it could, it could, you know, and then I could start doing something else. And that's the play, that's the improvisatory aspect. And then I go away from it and then I probably come back and think, no, but it could be like this. Okay, I could do it and it's come from a different height. What if I drop it? What if I drop it and it makes that sound and it falls to the floor? Will it smash? Is that what I'm looking for? What is that smash? What am, what am I exploring here? Is it, what do I want to say? And then what you want to say may not always be understood by those who hear it. And that you cannot control. And you cannot second guess the reaction to something. There is no distance. You have to be very careful, I guess, about how you respond to the responses to your work. Do you have kind of mechanisms to help you, to protect you? I really don't. I feel like I'm just once that, you know, once that band-aid or plaster has been taken off, it just stays off. And I, I think because I have such strong, you know, ears to what I'm trying to say sonically, what other people say that might misinterpret it doesn't sink in unless I'm in a setting where it's kind of feedback is necessary. If the setting doesn't allow it, you know, for that kind of response, then I, I just, I'm just like, well, okay, I'm glad you've got that interpretation. And I, and I think it's also really beautiful to hear other people's interpretations. Like, I agree. I agree. Do you find when someone has experienced what you've done and then have their own reading, which is not, it has nothing to do with <laughs> the way you feel about the work or the the inspiration behind the work or the meaning of the work do you find you learn more about the work because of that different reading Def of oh it? yeah definitely definitely i think oh 100 especially with uh this you know this work that i've done on on julius eastman and because it's not necessarily me talking about his work mm. i'm i'm talking about his essence like what remains of him and how it's kind of it feels like it's ingrained in me and it's like a feeling and then feelings can be interpreted any any way, anger, sadness, it can be anything for anyone. So that, I think that, especially for what you just said, I found that quite profound. I did a film on Julius Eastman of that, that essence. I did a, I did kind of like a pamphlet, like a zine uh, oh, that cool. goes along with the film. Uh, one of my friends posted it and, and she was like, oh, it's kind of like a love letter to Julius Eastman. And I'd never, those words have never been thought or said by me. And then when I actually reflected, I was like, Do you know what, it kind of is. Aside from the kind of the anger around, I feel around, you know, how he's been treated and, and how little exists on him and me trying to highlight that. There is also this element of, of feeling that, that love and, and appreciating him as well as just him. Did you attend the Julius Eastman Retrospective Festival that the London Contemporary Music Festival did in 2016? I did. I did. Oh, that was my first experience of the festival as a performer. Mm. I'd known Julius Eastman's work when I was a student a thousand years ago. The Unjust Malaise CD yeah. came out. A friend had told me about Julius Eastman at college. At that time, I mean, black composers, very few. We talk, I mean, hardly any. I mean, outside of jazz, in yeah. terms of classical music, 
it wasn't talked about at music college, let's put it that way. Julius Eastman's name came up and I've got the album, the CD. I was really excited to hear it, really excited to say, I put this on and I, read, and I got in touch with Mary Jane Leach. She wrote back and there was, so Mary Jane and I had been corresponding off and on for about 10, 10 years. I remember listening to Stay On It first and thinking, feeling really disappointed. It's very, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I felt, I don't know what I was expecting musically. I don't know. And I now realise it was down to the performance. And I'm not saying they did a bad job, but they didn't do justice to the music. And that's not because they can't play, but it's, it was more of an energy. It's just something was lacking for me. So we move on a number of years, 2016, then apartment house asked me to do it. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I get the score. And I'm like, the score's base is a transcription of that performance that's used on the album. Yeah. So it's very open, you know, it's very sketchy. And I was singing it and kind of preparing and I thought there's something not right. It's just, this is not, this doesn't feel right to me. This is not Eastman. I did not know that it was Julius Eastman on the eight songs for a Mad King performance, right. which is Peter Maxwell Davies. And it's his performance, that recording, which is like the go-to recording. But I hadn't put the two together. I didn't know he was responsible for that. And neither did I know that he wasn't on the fringes of the contemporary new music scene. He was very much a part of it. You can't really record Peter Maxwell Davies and not be part of the scene. And I'm like, well, how come his name was not known? Exactly. Was unknown or kind of forgotten? He sang in Meredith Monk's ensemble. We all yeah. know who Meredith Monk is. Exactly. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? So it's just, but it's not just Julius Eastman. It's happened to so many people. So many. So I, in prep preparing for the performance, I, I decided, I just thought, I'm just going to Google a bit and see what could come up. And CCA, the Centre for Contemporary Art in Glasgow, was at the base for a lot of experimental performance art and contemporary music. Mm. And Eastman's Ensemble toured, did a, they did a, a European tour in these early 70s and there's footage of him performing and I remember when I came across that and I'm saying this is days before just days before I was due to perform it at the festival it there's like yes my instincts were right this is how you do it it needs that level of wildness yeah which you can't hear on the cd it just needs, you just need to throw caution to the winds. Mm. And you really need to just, if you don't do that with a piece, it doesn't make sense when we all lock in and play that refrain or that motive. That's the staying on it. That is the thing that steers you through. And you have to ask yourself, what does that mean? Stay on it. What does it mean? How, you know, if I'm going to sing it this way, I'll sing it the one I'm trying to say. And for the ensemble, it's, Terrifying if you're not used to improvising. Most classically trained musicians don't improvise. 
And, what was that uh, like? In my head, I just remember saying to him, look, just, we know what the cues are. We knew who was cueing what. He said, in between that, when you're improvising, just have fun. Don't pull out of your bag of all the best contemporary uh, extended techniques I've ever learned right <laughs> if you need to do that then use it as a springboard onto other things you know you have to in order to to be able to feel to enjoy improvising you do need to listen because someone will play something that will inspire you and you might just latch on to that and then you just not go on to somewhere else but don't be afraid and there's no wrong here the only wrong thing you could do is not listen because that means you're off on one and you're not going to stay on it and we need you to stay exactly. on it <laughs> do you know there are moments when you're in something you think oh man this is a car crash but also that's what eastman wants there are moments where it just oh, this mangled wreck and you're like oh what's going on no yes yes and I remember there was there were moments where I was like, stop! <laughs> yeah. Exactly, but you're right. That's exactly what Eastman wants. Like he in wants a lot that. of his music, I think the scores that exist of him, like the the sketches that he made himself, mm. perhaps they were deliberately done in that way to open up something that doesn't necessarily live in traditional scoring methods or notation i completely agree with you and it was he was trying he was experimenting and he wanted to kind of kind of blow up this kind of this mm. kind of fixed rigid way whilst respecting the canon because he knew it he demands that you do what is on the score and he asks you to trust the process mm. and if you're unwilling to trust that process you cannot perform the work right. it's as simple as that because you you go there to your own peril if you think you can just do whatever you like because <laughs> you'll be spat out at the end wondering what happened. I love how Apartment House is still championing his work. I always see on social media this, you know, his, his, he's always there. I love, yes. I love that they've kept that going. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And I, how did your relationship start with Apartment House? Well, um, Anton, who... Um, runs it and I really admire the way they well the, the way they program it's very democratic basically the way it works is if he asks you to do something in the apartment house you get an invitation you know you say hey I've got this project would you like to do it and then you say yes and then therefore you are a member of apartment house that's what happened with the Eastman I've performed with them a number of times and it's, it's funny because you work with certain people and you get on with them and then you, you create projects which allow you to work together again if, you, if, you, if they're the right people. You know, it's kind of you build a family. I was thinking that with just how Apartment House, even just like if you've worked with them, do you remain a part of Apartment House? I love that you can just, that community aspect of it. Of, of I think that's so important. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's going to be even more important as we go into 2021, where everyone's going to be desperate to, to have work and to stay working and stay creative, that we remember our family, you know, kind of creative yeah. family as well. And, 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 I, and I, I'm going to say extend that net, cast it further, because that includes people who are not involved in the arts as well. You know, it's a more of a mindset. It's mm -hmm. more of kind of kindred spirits, um, people who hold similar ideas and they want 
to improve, help to improve society by with what they're doing and you work together. I think that's so important because that, those things have been undermined uh, by political structures and sure. some communities always had this where they look they looked out for each other anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think some communities surprised themselves, some people surprised themselves about what they have learned about their neighbours or that they can be more giving. And I think from an artistic point of view, the artistic community needs to dig deep with that. I think we're all going to be pitted against each other because uh, we're all so desperate to get working again. Yeah. Towards the end of my degree, I actually got more work than I'd ever gotten. <laughs> and why, why was that? What happened? I feel like a lot of people around me had time to have ideas and of course like funding opportunities opened up because of the crisis um, and there was just more time to reach out to people so I, I think maybe just the, the, the time just allowed maybe my name to come up more this year I've just worked on so many different types of projects is this going to stop when things go back to <laughs> go back to normal like just see everything as building because we don't know this year was building for next year and the year beyond that we're doing the doing the stuff now but what about 2020 what about 2022 right <laughs> you know right. and uh, i i um my friend and i we used to laugh about whether or not we got a commission well that really ever happened but <laughs> it's a, when you get your first commission that is for two years' time, then you know you're on the right road. <laughs> yes. Where were you at in your career when you got that commission? Okay, in 2010, I used to work with composers, as in I used to promote composers, and I worked for a classical music publishing um, house, uh, an Italian one called Ricordi. There was a shift in my employment status, mm-hmm. and. Um, I was faced with, are you going to do this singing thing forever or are you going to still mess around and try and do both? So I chose to throw everything into being a full-time musician. So in 2010, I was offered a residency in Venice for three months. Um, So I was involved in a a, a Belgian project run by Music Theatre Transparent, and it was called uh, Century Songs. And basically they brought together different kinds of vocalists uh, for a two year project where we would meet for a week, four times a year and devise a piece guided by David Moss, who is an American vocalist and percussionist who lives in Berlin and uh, Walter Van Loy, who directed us and we would present the the outcome of that week of research and play and stuff um, at the at a festival, so I was I really enjoyed that because that kind of helped me to kind of really cement what I wanted to do and also I'm singing and in an environment which was unfamiliar to me. I don't know that scene outside of the UK because I was improvising a little bit and working with some free improv musicians, amazing musicians. I needed to extend my experience. Music Theatre Transparent had an association with a foundation in, in Venice. And so I was offered this residency and that was a really, that's a massive turning point. But it was great because I could research things and I invited a friend, David Toop, who I'd worked with on his piece, Star Shaped Biscuit. And I asked David to 
to create a piece with me in mind and he created of Leonardo da Vinci which used the diaries of Leonardo da Vinci and a sound piece by David mm. and I improvised the vocal part using this text. We kind of did a sharing in 2010 and I really wanted to develop the piece further and Dom had come back from Hong Kong and I said look I've got this piece really want to present it somewhere shall we just shall we just have a go at just playing I then because I was in publishing I still had quite a lot of email addresses of festival contacts and I was lucky and I think it had to do with timings luck plays a massive you make your own luck, right? So, yeah. and you have to be very patient. Yeah, it's not always as spontaneous. <laughs> no, don't believe the films. <laughs> it is hard to pursue a creative, artistic career, lifestyle, a career. To follow that in your life, it is a challenge to do that if you're not coming from a background where that's kind of valued. But I, I basically wrote to um, a colleague at a festival in Oslo. I don't, basically, I wrote to loads of festivals. <laughs> I wrote to loads of, hey, I got this piece. I've done this work with Dave Toop. Would you be interested in taking it? We need to finish it. And so to our astonishment, and this is 2015, five years after starting that piece, we got a response. And they said, yeah, the festival's in September. Now, you know, I got that email in June. And it's a 50-minute piece. So we, we had to work really hard. And that piece, I've performed it about five times. I really enjoy it. And it was a very important piece in terms of bringing together the ideas that we had been researching about movement and improvisation. I mean, I presented that and then Sound and Music have supported me with Industrializing Intimacy. Then 2017, The Sweet Tooth. Sweet Tooth, I was researching for five years. I wanted to get into that, actually. Of course, the research and time went, that went into that. Mm. But also how you approach accessing those stories using your voice and yeah. using your body. Was there anything that was different about how you normally... Uh, each work is, is, is unique and requires different kind of access in terms of, because of what, it, what the piece is about. With Sweet Tooth, I mean, it's such a big subject. Someone who I respect enormously, they asked me what right did I have to tackle this, to present it in a kind of artistically creative way, musical way. My answer was because nobody seems to know about this period and why things are the way they are in the UK mm. and the things that happened in the past how they impact on our present that is something that we need to face up to and acknowledge so that helped me to find ways to access the movement first of all there are the facts and I got in touch with Krista Petley, someone who studied that period and may help me access other kind of books, other areas of research, because it's a massive topic. And I wanted to 
really focus on the UK and the Caribbean because at school it was more about what happened in the States. Krista was the historical consultant and it was really helpful to have him on board because if you're not part of academia you can't really access certain books or you just yeah. don't know it's there do you and it was useful because also for him because you know historians deal with the dry facts they're passionate about it but it's very distant whereas we pull this information and we process it and then we chuck it out in another way you know we communicate it another way and I think he was completely startled by what I did with his research for his PhD, which was on Simon Taylor, who was a very successful and a, a horrible person, but a successful plantation owner in Jamaica mm. and his diaries. And I took an extract from his diaries and used that towards the end of, of Sweet Tooth. And Krista was very, he was adamant, said, I don't want this to, to memorialise people like Simon Taylor said, don't worry, that's not what this piece is about. But it was the sound, and coming back to you as a sound artist, as well as being a composer, it was the sound of, of, of that acted as triggers. Mm. You know, and so I had to try, when, we, when he, Krista was explaining about the mechanisms and the kind of equipment used, and, and I'm reading accounts of hands being chopped off or hands or limbs being mangled in as, as the cane is being ground. And this thing that just needs to keep going at the cost of human lives. I'm trying to imagine those sounds and how they can only do that by dehumanizing someone. And so that's why the actions in the mill section of, of, of Sweet Tooth, yeah. and we've got the canes that I wanted us to not only work with it musically, but at some point we become the machine mm. and then we break out and then there's the, there's the kind of joyful aspects of, of, of actually singing and dancing. Yeah. And for me, that's resistance because all of that is part of the code and the message of, you know, revolt. And so there is all these things that I've, I really wanted to, to access and use but they're all based on facts. And it was, it was hard. It was really hard. And it's, it's in, in mentally hard and it's physically hard and it's emotionally hard. And it's a, it's a difficult piece, I think, for people to sit through. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Obviously, I'm hearing about the process for the first time, but I've seen it on, uh, online. I didn't, see it. I didn't see it live. But there was that element of, of it being so difficult to watch because it was so personal to me, because it is something that still runs through my own history and is still affecting me today and so many people around me, of course. But for, for you as well, performing this and even like the lead up to performing it and, and going home after performing this piece, it to me doesn't feel like something you'd be like, oh, cool, I'm just going to leave that on the stage and go home. Like, it's a, yeah, it's someone, someone asked me the, the same question not that long ago. You have to develop ways, that's why I asked you earlier in our conversation about mechanisms for coping. If you don't develop a, a way for yourself, it can be very difficult. It can actually hinder future performances of the same work. It can prevent you from accessing that, what you need to access to present it. It's kind of, it's, it never leaves me, but it's a, just a step back. Because when, when we're performing it, we are so in it. Sylvia, Sylvia Hallett, Jason Yard, Mark Sanders, I mean, they're amazing artists in their own right. And it is built around their capabilities as well. I created it with them. That was the last piece we performed together in March this year wow. at Borealis Festival in Bergen. And performed it on the eighth of March. I that that was that was a really powerful performance. I don't know why. I don't know why. But um, at the end at the end of it, because it's a strange piece. You can't really just people do applaud, but they're not applauding because you know they've just been through Hamilton or something. It's not that kind of piece. No. I just think people need to release something they need to release because the way i've and i hope you you i hope we get a chance to perform it again and i hope you you get a chance to see it live experience it live because there is something that i do in the way that it's staged and because of social distancing i don't know if i could do it that way again but it's important for me that the audience experience it in a particular way that's why they're as exhausted as i am at the end of it you know they don't even realize it the audience seeing this piece or even saying like witnessing this piece Mm. is the the, they're clapping like you said because it's the only way they're allowed to express that's like appropriate to express their emotions how i felt after watching it was i did cry i was crying you know i think for some people you know depending on the audience it's like they're either like just oblivious to this history denying the history Mm. or a part of that history and like trying to get by you know (laughs) Sitting down and doing the research felt way too painful. I think this was the perfect way to acknowledge this part of history, something that I wasn't that clued up on as well. I felt it just gave me more agency to, to cry about it. 
and of course there was anger and of course there were other emotions but to express my sadness I felt like this was the perfect container to do that and I think that's why whoever's watching it must feel that way as well because we all know this existed we we all know it existed in this country slavery is something that Britain has a lot of responsibility for the emotion of of what people feel you know white audience members that have seen this I'm I'm always interested to see what they what you know what are they thinking on their way home yeah that's a really good question because um one of the things that I thought about when I was preparing I mean first of all it was I wanted the right musicians in this involved in this project people I know who who are not going to shy away it would have been easier I think to have had an all-black cast in a lot of ways that would have been a more powerful statement but it's a more obvious statement yeah by having Sylvia who is not black Sylvia is white she's a brilliant musician she's also uh, very politically aware and engaged but she also had to go through the process because she's English and that is why I needed to have someone who wasn't black in this. The majority of my audiences are white because I think as black artists working not in mainstream music we have to accept and be aware that the majority of our audiences will be white and for a lot of for most black people are not interested mm-hmm. it's just not that's not their thing and that's fine that is absolutely fine there are other creative fields that are of interest by to our community mm-hmm. if it's not kind of left field Mm. contemporary music or the classical music straight up classical music but that's the way it is you know and that's i mean maybe that will change over the years but if it doesn't then that's that's all cool Mm. but when i presented it when i presented sweet tooth it's what i've noticed that afterwards people have engaged in very frank deep conversations not with me but with each other with the person next to them who was probably a stranger you, you kind of need to just talk to someone who was there as a fellow traveler since sweet tooth perhaps the people expect you to make more <laughs> more work similar <laughs> like and I'm, I'm thinking in the in the context of you know over the summer of george floyd being murdered and uh, do, you, do you think people were kind of lying in wait, like, oh, Elaine, are you? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I only put out political work. It's all about identity. It's all, it's all. It's the only way that I can talk about the things that that I feel political about. You know, I can find I my voice speaks through the work, and I have said, however. I have said I would really like to be in a comedy or, you know, because I think most people think I spend all my time going, oh, <laughs> you know, you know, it's like yeah. some kind of Greek tragedy. And I like to laugh, you know, just kind of a joy. But I also, I'm, you know, I'm not really a light entertainment kind of pre- presenter. And, but I think those expectations are there. So when, the tragic events around George Floyd and, you know, that has been repeated mm. since. Yeah. But we haven't all gone out marching mm-hmm. since. 
so what's happened is it not important anymore do you see what i mean it's like the that's why these our works kind of need to remind people of it's a continuous thing you know the change doesn't happen overnight you have to keep fighting keep fighting look at angela davis she fought in her 70s and she's alive to see what happened in the summer and what's still going on yeah. in the, do you see what i mean it's like it but she hasn't given up so i use the work as reminders to myself and maybe to those who want to experience it do you know Ian bailey i do yes i do right so and she had an exhibition last year at the cubit gallery and she invited different artists to respond to the exhibition and i performed amazing grace and i um it's something that i performed well i premiered it there and then sang it again on the night of the first lockdown at cafe oto when they were live streaming and then i i have because i'm working with movement still I kind of slowly kind of just melt into the ground whilst singing this, but Amazing Grace, if you know the history behind the yeah. song, it, you know, it's such a, well, hymn, I should say, mm. it's, it's so well known. It's a favourite, you know, it's one of my mother's favourite hymns. Well, it's about a song of transformation and, a, you know, someone woke up to what they were doing, but also it's, what they were doing was so wrong. There was a reason why I mentioned it, um, because it was interesting singing it in front of a small group of people at the Cubit Gallery. It was no less powerful doing it for that. Yeah, people, it always amazes me that audiences trust, trust what I'm doing and, mm. and stick with it. Actually, that's very generous of them. Yeah. It's quite short, it's 10 minutes. And it felt different presenting it at Cafe Oto on the first lockdown. So it was that night when Boris Johnson said, yeah. right, stay home. And I felt as a performer, a, a responsibility to try and present the work present it with a real kind of honesty and directness because none of us knew when we might perform again. You seem to be choose your moments of having these very important moments of your performances. You know, the sweet tooth, the last show, you know, the night of lockdown. <laughs> it's not me. It's not me. <laughs> oh, I'm going to say other forces at play here. just had the amazing grace it was selected um to be part of the sky tv takeover by marina abramovich she did six and a half hour performance arts yeah, yeah. night yeah. <laughs> and so i performed amazing grace then and it felt it i was just thinking about each time i presented it it can stand the treatment that i'm giving it because it's actually a very well written hymn. Because mm. the way I, I approach it, I approach it with its history. It's like I can't watch a Jane Austen film, yeah. a Jane Austen dramatization without thinking 
about the people of colour that live in the UK at that time. You know, because she does mention a guy who's come back from the West Indies and an Englishman who's in the West Indies is only there for a reason. And I'm like, Jane, Jane, <laughs> I just stopped there, Jane. There's an amazing dramatisation of, um, of, of Oliver Twist and it's David Lean, so it's old. And there's a scene, I'll never forget it. I remember seeing it when I was a lot younger and watching it. And in the tavern, David Lean, the director, there's loads of people and they're black people in the pub. And I thought, yes, yeah. that's what you do. Yeah. That's what you do, because it's history, it's fact. You clock <laughs> it, you think, what are they doing there? Why are they just, oh, ah. Oh. Mm, yes <laughs> this is i feel like uh, like myself included a lot of black people do have that automatic like switch that's just like looking for another <laughs> it is funny when you're saying that because i felt that way um working in classical music publishing because yeah. you know you go to concerts and you <laughs> and then i was talking to my friend uh, the amazing composer hannah kendall yeah. who, if you don't know her work, check her out. Her opera was presented at the Opera House um, and streamed a couple of months ago. She worked um, in classical music PR and it was really, we were having a laugh about this not that long ago. I remember the, I think that, I, I remember spotting her in the festival hall and I've got an orchestral concert. I'm like, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> and then you go to some kind of meeting where it's all kind of arts managers or arts men. Yeah. And you're like, well, there she is again. And she said, Elena. And then she said, oh my goodness, now I know. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, for years, I'd go to these parties and composers would come up to me and say, you work in publishing, right? Oh, it's just like no. I would say, "Hey, it's Elaine, right?" Oh <laughs> no! Like, <laughs> and the thing is, we don't even look alike. <laughs> but it, it was. Really, <laughs> I guess if there are only two black women who are not on stage performing and working in classical music, then you probably will get mixed up. This year um, has really um, the events of this year has kind of forced the hand of, of institutions that probably wouldn't have bothered to make changes and they can't get away with it now. I would, I would hope that it's coming from a genuine place, even if their hands have been forced, that they realise we've been too slow on this uptake. The percentage of, black, of the black population in the UK is still small. Mm. We can't expect to have half the orchestra represent you just can't because yeah. the, and also education is not allowing that so the things that you're doing the things that i'm trying to do and our, our fellow travelers that's that's how we can make those changes but we may not i may not see it in the way that i would like to see it in my lifetime because it takes a long time it does it does and and it's like god it takes this this moment in history where we're all collectively going through something and to, to, to have the time to be tuned into something. Well, they can't get away with not knowing or feigning ignorance now, yeah. you know. And so, you know, for example, George Lewis, who uh, very generously asked me to co-curate the London Sinfonietta's concert, Yet Unheard, it was music by black composers. Yeah. That is a step forward. 
you know, it can't be a one-off. It has to be done this way until we get to a stage where it doesn't matter the race of the composer. What yeah. matters is how good the work is. Do you know what I mean? Or the, the gender, because the yeah. same thing could be said about, you know, all women concerts and, you know, blah. but we have to program in this way until it's yeah. not, we don't have, until we don't have to. Yeah, because I still think it like as, as great as it is to for black composers and, and black sound and musicians to, to have opportunities, more opportunities than before, mm. to be in these spaces, there is still something kind of uncomfortable about being put there because you're black and it ending there. Mm. I think, it, like you said, to come to, to get to a space where it's, it's not like... <gasps> there's a black composer in the, in the Royal Albert Hall or like, there's a, you know, this, there's a, you know, this black woman conducting this awkward, like, regards, yeah. like, when the kind of hysteria around that, like, that is just a step to another step, which will be far more just safer. It will just feel like, you know, progress has been made where we stop gasping that these people exist because of, because history hasn't allowed it, you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think that, I mean, we, we also must be patient with ourselves and not feel that we have to be representative. We, we speaking for everyone because you can't, you can only speak for yourself and you represent yourself. I think there is a tendency to expect that from us. You know, if you, if you're interviewed, if you're questioned about anything that you then, what you say represents every other black person and you, but, but we're all different and we all have different experiences and we all think differently. And I might disagree with you, Rebecca. That doesn't mean yeah. you're wrong and I'm right or I'm right and you're wrong. Um, I think also changes behind the scenes in terms of the programme, those who are decision makers, that needs to be more representative as well. As, and also in terms of um, class, because yeah. in the UK, that's a massive thing. It needs to change because you can't empathise with people unless you know, if you, unless you have some kind of understanding of where of their life experience. You just can't. Definitely. But change is happening. Tokes Dada is head of classical music at the Southbank oh, Centre. Yes. Oh, he's great. I mean, it's a massive challenge, um, but I think he will do good things. He understands the repertoire, he understands orchestras, and you have to know, whatever you do, Rebecca, whatever area you're working in, you, you have to know, you can't afford not to know. That we're not being judged equally. <laughs> you have high standards and you keep them high, and and you have to just keep, keep them high and just have to keep working and keep positive and also I think be kind to yourself as well and that that and it's otherwise you can't work you can't create you can't do anything and also just kind of know who your allies are some don't look like you some don't come from the same backgrounds of you and some you know but they but they are they are allies and I think that's really important as well because this kind of fight for change and, and it can't be done on its own. We can't do it on our own.
Elaine, thank you. You were an inspiration to me before this conversation and, and more so now. So I'm just so grateful to have had this conversation with you. Thank you for everything. Thank, thank you. you thank yeah. you for reaching out. And that was my conversation with Elaine Michener for this episode of Inspired on the Barbican podcast, Nothing Concrete. Next week, we have Barbican Young film programmer, alumni, writer and journalist Rogan Graham who speaks to actor Susan Wakoma about process, activism and inspiration. Please do stay tuned for more inspiring conversations by subscribing to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good one. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.